Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Corporate personhood, the history of the corporation, is our subject for today. First, some unfinished business from Wednesday. That's when we uh, had an interview with Brooke and Terry Tempest-Williams. They're out with a new edition of a book that's become a favorite of theirs, The Story of My Heart, by a British nature writer, Richard Jeffries. And this provoked a response from Kylie in Moab, who said, This show today with Brooke and Terry is the perfect tonic for this day. I feel as if I'm hearing pieces of my life being spoken of in regard to Jeffries and his writings, along with Brooke and Terry's thoughts on life, wildness, wandering civilization, wilderness, and the environment. Hearing of Maine, where I've lived and so profoundly changed me in our relationships with our partners, 18 years today for John and I, so thankful for the show. Hugs to Brooke and Terry. Thanks for that, Kylie. Now, today, are corporations people? The U.S. Supreme Court says they are, at least for some purposes. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports in the past four years, the high court has dramatically expanded corporate rights. And we all know those rulings ruled that corporations have the right to spend money in candidate elections. For some for-profit corporations may, on religious grounds, refuse to comply with the federal mandate to cover birth control in their health uh, employee health plans. Some have noted, if we take the idea of corporate personhood literally, some corporate so-called citizens display sociopathic tendencies. Well, on today, we're going to kick off a four-part series. We'll discuss today the history of corporations and how they've reached the status they enjoy today. Our guests include Adrian Wooldridge, management editor of The Economist and co-author of The Company, A Short History of a Revolutionary Idea. Mr. Wooldridge joins us from, I believe, London. Welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate you taking the time. In studio with me is William Shugart, J. Fish Smith Professor in Public Choice in the USU Huntsman School of Business and Research Director and Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. We're going to look at uh, the rise of corporations uh, throughout history and in the U.S. And uh, later in this series, we'll take a look at arguments for and against corporate personhood, the impact of the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, Citizens United ruling, the subsequent movement and move to amend, which seeks to overturn that ruling. But today, uh, some, some history. We'll get into some of the uh, current politics as well. Uh, Mr. Woldridge, I wonder if, if you could um, recount where you start the book. Uh, uh, properly enough, as in every occasion, I would imagine, with Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, absolutely. We start the book with one of the most remarkable um, operettas that Gilbert and Sullivan ever uh, wrote, which was called Utopia, or The Flowers of Progress. Utopia Limited, or The Flowers of Progress, which was essentially about the Joint Stock Company Act of 1862 in Britain, an odd subject for an opera uh, or operetta, but it, it was basically about this, this, this Joint Stock Company Act, which made it easier to create companies. And the theme that Gilbert and Sullivan talk about is the idea that there will become a day when everybody becomes a company, when every child is issued with an, uh, a certificate of incorporation with their birth. And it was really about the mania for creating stock companies which swept through Britain from the 1860s onwards. And it includes some remarkable um, lines about the virtues and vices of joint stock companies. <laughs> and and Gilbert is, is uh, you know, he's being funny, but he's prescient as well. He says this is going to sweep the world. Absolutely. Uh, and of course it does. I mean, the, the, it's about an act which was um, issued in 1862. And up until then, basically the right to become a joint stock company with limited liability was limited to very uh, precise categories of organization which were essentially performing public duties 
which that might be a canal, it might be a toll road, or it might be something like that. But you had to specify what sort of duty you were going to perform in order to have this privilege of incorporation and limited liability. And after that, basically what the Victorians do is make it possible for anybody or any organization to become a joint stock company, regardless of what it wants to do. So you don't have to specify what you want to do with this limited liability status. You can just set up a business, get limited liability, and go into business doing, doing within the law, whatever, whatever you want to do. And that led to a huge boom in the creation of joint stock companies in Victorian England. Um, and it was a boom that led to inevitable busts. It led to a lot of fraudulence. It, 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 it led to a lot of um, speculation, and that was really the subject that uh, Gilbert and Sullivan were, were were writing about. And you say that the the corporation doesn't get mentioned as much as it uh, should in in histories. It's you you, you state uh, it's the most important organization in the world. Uh, the only rival is the family. Uh, absolutely, it's extraordinary how little has been written. I think our book was a, one of the first books that really took this theme of the company and tried to look at its role throughout history. So you have business historians who write about business, write about companies in particular periods and in particular countries, but nobody had really tried to look at it as an organization across time. And it is an extraordinarily powerful organization. I mean, it really changes the world in dramatic ways. And it has changed, uh, as I said just, just now, it's changed dramatically over time. So the, the, the idea that you can be a joint stock company, that you can have the, the, the benefits of limited liability, is something that until relatively recently, until the middle of the 19th century, was restricted to only a very, very few organizations which claim to be fulfilling, fulfilling public purposes. So the company changes very dramatically over time. Let me bring in Professor Shugart. Uh, I wonder if you talk about what the, what the advantages are. This is... This has been called a, a great innovation, the limited liability joint uh, stock company. What, uh, what are the advantages here? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, the evolution of the corporation in the United States uh, followed a very similar tr- uh, pattern as it did in the U.K., uh, but we were earlier. Mm. Uh, uh, up until 1837, uh, joint stock companies were essentially private contracts between investors, uh, uh, owners of firms, that actually, in the contract, granted many of the things that we now characterize the corporation. Number one, limited liability, so that any investor's uh, downside risk was limited to the amount of money they had invested in the company, rather than uh, in a sole proprietorship or a partnership where the firm goes bust, and every, every, the owners are on the hook uh, for, for all losses and, and may require, uh, you know, selling their home. Uh, 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 and uh, I think uh, in, in the book, the company said they were liable up to, up to their cufflinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the cufflinks. Right, right. <laughs> Including the cufflinks. <laughs> Including the cufflinks. And, but in that era, uh, the only way the, in the United States, the only way you could become a corporation was to negotiate a deal with the legislature, a state legislature. And I, I, once again, uh, in the United States, uh, those early corporations were limited to specific purposes. Uh, their charters were may uh, have a term of 20 years. There might have been uh, – uh, requirements for how much paid-in capital the the company had to have, but they they were basically set up to build infrastructure, primarily 
roads, bridges, canals, and so forth. Uh, and uh, so that uh, you had to cut a deal with the legislature, just as in England before the 1860s, you had to cut a deal with the king or the queen uh, to become a corporation. Uh, uh, but these joint stock companies were outside of that legal framework. They were private contracts that granted limited liability, perpetual life. And uh, the other, other characteristic that we uh, normally think of uh, is uh, uh, shares, issue shares exactly. that mm -hmm. could uh, be traded and sold, bought and sold on – primitive at that time uh, exchanges. Uh, so uh, in 1837 in the United States, the state of Connecticut created what's called the first general chartering law, uh, that allowing any company to become a, a corporation, any joint stock company to become a corporation just by following some general rules uh, of you know, identify who the owners are, what are their ownership shares, blah, 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 what's the capitalization. But if you met the criteria, you can just call yourself a corporation mm -hmm. and register with uh, the Secretary of State or some other uh, public official. And that was really that shift from special chartering to general chartering was, in the, at least the United States, the reason that the corporation took off. Hmm. And after 1837, general chartering law spread uh, across uh, the states. Uh, Mr. Wildridge, uh, I wonder if we could jump into this idea of uh, corporate, corporation as a person. Um, you said in the book that uh, the companies then developed uh, with these new rules the advantages of personhood Without the disadvantages of biology that, you know, curse we, we, we deal with. Uh, so that, as you get, it gives the app of the book, the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company can now do post-it notes. It just lives on and, and perhaps forever. Exactly. In the, in the 16th century, when you got these big general chartered companies, um, people said about them, look, they're, they've, they're, 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 they've got no souls, they're not mortal, but they're people as it were. They can, they can live uh, forever. And one of the ways that they tried to bind these extraordinary, powerful organizations, these collective people, uh, to the public good was to say, well, you can have all of these rights, um, but you must perform a public good. So you must build roads, you must build um, infrastructure of various sorts, or you must pursue trade with other countries, as you saw with the East India Company. So there's a sense that these were, these were, 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 were all powerful people, immortal people. You needed to bind them in. Then what happens in, uh, from the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s onwards is the creation of these general purpose companies is that you say you can have all these advantages of personhood. You can also have the advantage of being immortal. But you don't have to do anything very specific for it. You can do anything with these these privileges. So in a sense, you're unbinding these these uh, people, uh, these corporate persons, and giving them an extraordinary degree of power. And of course, that creates a very uh, vigorous backlash. Of saying, what what you, these people have got? All, these companies have got all these 
privileges of personhood, all these privileges of immortality. They don't have to belong to a certain country. They don't have to do a certain number of things. Um, we must try and bind them in, 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 in certain ways. And as a result of that, you get various moves to, 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 to break up monopolies, to, to sub subjugate them to general uh, corporate purposes, to make sure that they, they, they pursue the, the social good. So all the way from the 1860s onwards, or from the 1830s onwards in the United States, when you free these organizations, you then get another wave of worry about uh, about corporate personhood. I mean, why they have personhood? Basically, it's so they can engage in contracts um, and act, as it were, as collective entities rather than as agglomerations of individuals. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll get into this. So we'll get, we'll get back into the history. But uh, while we're here, I'd, I'd like to uh, take a look at this, uh, uh, use the word, uh, Mr. Wiltridge, soulless. That's what a lot of people use. <laughs> soulless corporate. They're soulless people. But they're, you know, they have the advantages of people. And so people worry about this. And that's where you get uh, all this furor over Citizens United. And you have the move to amend. Yeah. Uh, uh, Professor um, Shugart, also, before we went on the air, you, you talked about the monopolies of the 1890s. And you have a perhaps an opinion that would go against conventional wisdom as, as we look at that. We'll get into that as well, more following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, featuring croque madame topped with egg, Swiss cheese, cream, ham broiled atop a thick slice of sourdough. Breakfast menu at crumbbrothers.com. One day in 1973, John Francis decided to stop speaking. Yeah, but just for one day. <laughs> but if I had started and someone said, John, you're not going to speak for 17 years, I might not have gone on. I'm Guy Raz, searching for quiet in a noisy world. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, taking this idea of corporate personhood uh, and looking at the history. This is the first of a uh, several-part series. We'll get into uh, in subsequent programs in depth talking about uh, Citizens United ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, the Move to Amend movement, and uh, some other aspects of this. But our corporations people? Well, the law says they are. In many respects, they are people. The U.S. Supreme Court has recently expanded the rights as people of corporations. That's controversial. And Mr. Wildridge, uh, Adrian Wildridge, who is with us, who is management editor at The Economist and co-author of the book The Company, A Short History of a Revolutionary Idea, said that there has always been this tension. It goes back and forth. We have with us also in studio William Shugart, J. Fish Smith, professor in public choice in the USU Huntsman School of Business. He's also research director and senior fellow at the Independent Institute in uh, Oakland. And so I'd like to dive in here. We'll get a little more of the history, but uh, while we're here, this idea of uh, corporate uh, personhood, uh, Mr. Wildridge makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And that's where you get this pushback on Citizens United, for example. And that goes back, I guess you're saying that goes back a long ways. Uh, for example, in the book, you talk about Pre President Rutherford B. Hayes, 1870s, warned against the corporate power. Yeah, no, I mean, it's always made people uh, uncomfortable. And that was why, you know, corporations when they were first created in the in the in, in the 16th century as commercial entities um, had all sorts of restrictions 
put on them. They, they, had to, they had to pursue infrastructure projects and things like that. And then again, when you unbind them from those restrictions and say they, they can be general purpose corporations that can do anything, go into any line of business they want to, again, you get a sharp reaction saying, well, wait a minute, they've got all of these powers, they're immortal. Um, we must try and bind them in. And one of the most important things you do is to create um, anti-monopoly legislation to make sure that they're not too powerful and that they're subjected to to competition. Um, and again, you get um, notions that they should contribute to, to people's pensions and things like that. They should have certain social obligations in, imposed on them as a quid pro quo of having this extraordinary capacity to, as it were, reproduce themselves and to, to, to globalize themselves uh, and to, to act as, as, as... It's not just that they're persons, which they must be in order to create contracts with um, uh, with other institutions, but that they're, they're immortal persons and persons that aren't citizens of particular countries. Uh, so, Professor Shugart, yeah, I believe I'm quoting you properly. Before we went on the air, you talked about the robber barons, and you're you're okay with that. Uh, with that. Well, uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot of myths that surround the robber barons. Uh, Number one, uh, let me add to the list of, of uh, characteristics of personhood that are important for a corporation, the ability to be sued uh, for any unlawful acts that the corporation uh, engages in. If, if not for the corporation being a person, you would have to sue the individual owners, the CEO, the managers of the firm individually and prove their culpability. Uh, so uh, ability to sue and be sued is an important characteristic of personhood in addition to all the other things we've talked about. Uh, the 1890s was a, a remarkable, remarkable period in, in, the, uh, in the United States history. Number one, uh, at the beginning of the decade, there began a long, slow, uh, dramatic uh, deflation of prices throughout the uh, uh, economy as a whole. Prices were falling, but if you look at the so-called trust or the big companies, the Vanderbilt's companies, the Rockefeller companies, and so forth, output in those industries was expanding faster than uh, in the uh, non-trust parts of the economy, and prices in, uh, of the goods and services produced by those trusts were falling faster than the general level prices. And so there's a remarkable uh, addition to wealth that these companies brought us. Uh, you know, <clears throat> one interesting thing to me is that except for J.P. Morgan, uh, the founders of these companies Cornelius Vanderbilt and uh, John D. Rockefeller Sr., for example, came from poverty. Uh, and in <clears throat> creating their, their companies, I, I know a lot about Standard Oil. Why is Standard Oil called Standard Oil? Because it developed a process for refining kerosene, which was the ma major petroleum product of the time, to remove the impurities uh, from it. And those impurities uh, uh, that were left in by other refiners of kerosene resulted in 3,000 deaths every year from fires and explosions of kerosene lamps and, and heaters. And that, that uh, when Standard Oil's product came on the market, not only did it 
uh, reduced the death rate to pretty close to zero, but it also solved a major economic crisis, which was the looming shortage of whale oil, which at the time was, before kerosene, was the major illuminate. So I, I think that the uh, robber barons, so-called, are <coughs> get, incorrectly given a black eye. Uh, if you l- look at the, what their contributions to the U.S. economy, they were immense. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, – where do you think the, the scale should, should land there? Is there some regulation needed? Uh, probably so, although uh, – you know, a profit-making corporation or a profit-making firm ha- has an incentive to treat its customers right, to treat its employees right, and to treat its suppliers right. Uh, otherwise, uh, their reputation is Im- damaged, and and they lose sales. Hmm. Uh, so, but there has there uh, have ha- probably should be some rules of the game uh, that all corporations should follow in terms of in environmental uh, protection. Uh, but I don't think that CEOs of corporations should give corporate profits to the local opera or the local symphony. Mm-hmm. Uh, the social responsibility of business idea tries to turn a, a for-profit company into a social welfare agency, and it, it's not geared to be that. Interesting. Uh, I hesitate to ask this, but I will. What, what about the public radio station? Should the should the <laughs> should, should the corporation give <laughs> give to the public radio station? Uh, I, I, no comment. Oh, okay. All right. We, we appreciate that, uh, Mr. Wildridge. Um, uh, this idea. I would like to pursue this idea that Professor Shugart uh, brought up. Corporations can be sued. Uh, there are people that can be sued, but I think at least the populist view of this would be that, uh, you know, the big corporations have a lot of money, they can absorb that, and the managers who perhaps uh, acted badly don't really feel the pain. Yeah, look, I, mean, I, think, I think companies have to be treated as, as, as individuals, as people, as corporate persons, in order to engage in contracts. Um, because they are, as it were, they have a personality, they have an identity which is above and beyond the identity of all the individuals who who uh, constitute the companies. They're collective agencies, and that's necessary for any sort of business transaction. However, I'm worried about taking that notion too far, ascribing to companies too many rights, um, equating the, 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 you know, the right to engage in contracts with the right to engage in political activity, uh, and I'm also worried about that for partly because I don't want uh, you know companies to be going around um, visibly interfering with the democratic process and visibly throwing their weight around in a democracy. But also because I think it opens the way to the opposite uh, argument, which is to say, well, if these people are individuals, or if they are um, have all of these rights to interfere in the political process, they also have lots and lots of obligations, such as to to fund uh, the local opera. And things like that, because the flip side of the sort of argument which the Supreme Court seems to embrace, which is an extreme interpretation of corporate personhood, is uh, to say, well, well, why don't they have obligations along with uh, uh, along with all these privileges to to act like people in political processes? Mm. Uh, so I think it's it's it's, yeah. it's it's a perfectly reasonable uh, legal construct to allow transactions uh, and contracts to be made. But I don't think you should push the analogy too far. 
Let me uh, follow that up with with uh, this worry about corporate power. Some uh, corporate, especially with multinational corporations, you have a worry among a lot of people. Uh, they, you know, they cross the state boundaries. They're global. They're very powerful. In some cases, more powerful than states. And this goes back a long time as well. British East India Company, you point out in the book, had their own army, larger than the British army. They did indeed. They ruled the continent. I mean, that's, that's taking power a very, very long way. Uh, and so we bring that forward to today, and that, that is a worry. What, how do you address that worry? Well, I, me personally, I think that any great concentrations of power are extremely worrying, particularly when those great concentrations of power are linked to collusion with political political power, when you have corporate and political power intertwining with each other, which is why I think companies acting as political actors is something which we should be extremely nervous about. And so I would uh, would, would deal, deal with it partly by ensuring the maximum degree of competition as possible, so that the, the competition would exert the sort of influence that it should have on the agglomerations of power, which is to break it up, but partly to put restrictions on the right of companies to, 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 to voice their political opinions. We turn to Professor Shugart. What's, what's your opinion? Let's bring it forward to Citizens United and the latest moves by the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, political um, or corporate people in the political arena. Right. Well, let me start out by saying that the first multinational corporation uh, was probably the medieval Catholic Church. Uh, it was organized like a multidivisional firm, like uh, corporations today with profit centers and uh, uh, uh plants, a diocese in um, virtually every uh, country uh, uh, of the world. Uh, look, uh, you know, I'm not worried about concentrations of economic power. I worry about concentration of political power. Uh, I don't have to buy anything from Amazon.com, but I do have to send my kids to the local public school if, when they were of school age. And even when they're not of school age, I still have to pay property taxes to support uh, the public schools. So uh, corporations do not have the power of coercion uh, that government does. And But I am, like Mr. Wooldridge, worried about what we nowadays call corporate cronyism. Uh, maybe a better term would be national social, socialism, the, the ungodly alliance of big government and big business. Uh, and that alliance exists, uh, in my view, partly, because government is so large, has so many uh, powers, that uh, you know, corporations want have an incentive to take advantage of those uh, powers especially if they can bend them to their own purposes. I find that very scary. We're, if you just joined us, let me reintroduce our guests. So we're talking about corporate personhood, this idea, legal concept that corporations are people. The U.S. Supreme Court has been ruling on this and uh, giving corporations, uh, asserting more rights for corporations in the political arena. They have said in a recent ruling that uh, some for-profit corporations may, on religious grounds, refuse to comply with the federal mandate to cover birth control for their uh, health employee health plans, for example. 
And we're talking about the history of the company. We're going to be talking in subsequent uh, parts of this series uh, specifically about uh, Citizens United and some other uh, aspects. Uh, Move to Amend, which seeks to overturn Citizens United. Talk about corporate social responsibility and other uh, other parts of this. The corporation, says uh, Mr. Woldridge, Adrian Woldridge, who is co-author of the book, The Company, A Short History of a Revolutionary Idea, is the most important organization in the world, only rivaled perhaps by the family. And uh, I think we'd be hard-pressed to counter that argument. And uh, so important to talk about this. You can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. That's 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. And our email is upraxcess at gmail.com. Adrian Wildridge is management editor for The Economist, and he joins us from London. William Shugart is J. Fish Smith Professor in Public Choice in the USU Huntsman School of, uh, of Business. Um, Mr. Wildridge, the next question to you. Uh, Professor Shugart uh, talked about the, the, what, what worries him is, is an alliance of, uh, of uh, an unfettered, perhaps a very too big state and, uh, and large corporations. There's, there's been a long-term tension between those two. Do you, do you, are you worried about an alliance between the two? Well, sure, absolutely, I, I am. And I think that's increasingly uh, a problem that we're seeing at the moment. But I don't just think it's, a, it's, a, it's not just a matter of, 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 of the government subordinating companies to its purposes. It's not just a matter of government being very big and very powerful. It's quite often a matter of companies subordinating government to its purposes, because you have in the United States in particular, but all around the world, some very big, very powerful companies that use the campaign finance system to um, support politicians and to, and to support political causes which, which uh, they believe in firmly. Um, I would say the situation that you have, for example, in the United States in terms of the quality and choice that you have over um, broadband, over television services, um, has been extremely uh, restricted, partly because of the power of companies such as Comcast, which give an extraordinary amount of money to, uh, to the government. Uh, so I think that uh, it's, uh, companies are subordinating public institutions to private purposes, and that's an extremely worrying thing. And uh, so they will tell you, uh, any lobbyist will tell you, all I get is, you know, I get some influence, I get some access, get some access. But of course, it's access that I don't have as, as a private citizen. Uh, one uh, incoming uh, Senate Majority Leader has uh, talked a lot about campaign finance. He's he's always been for, you know, let's 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 keep it unlimited. But he he has also always talked about transparency. Mr. Aldridge, I wonder if that's something you feel would be well, a, it, a remedy. Transparency. It, it, it is one way of doing it, and you can know you can log onto the internet and you can see long lists of people who've made contributions. But I just think when you've got an extraordinary amount of money flowing into politics much of it coming from corporations. I think it creates a sense that we have governments uh, of corporate, you know, not government of the people, by the people, for the people, but government of corporations, by corporations, for corporations. And it undermines the legitimacy of the system. I also think that I'm not sure why it should be the case that the CEOs and the chief executives of companies should be allowed to express the political opinions of, of widely diverse shareholders, the owners of the company, who will probably have very, very different political uh, positions and very political, different political uh, sympathies. So it's one, one area, you know, I, I think that it's, it's absolutely right that the company is a person for reasons of contract. But to stretch that analogy to, towards freedom of speech and re, free, freedom of political agitation 
is an influence is um, unnecessary uh, and deleterious to, um, to, 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 to the functioning of democracies. As I say, it also opens the door to people on the other side of the political aisle saying these, these, these corporate persons must also have corporate social responsibility and so they must act in this socially responsible way, which is exactly what people argued in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries when they said that in order to have a charter to operate, you had a guarantee that you were operating in the public good. Let me follow up with a couple of things with Professor Hugart. First, the, the last point by Mr. Wildridge, which, which we have your view, maybe just reiterate that view, Professor. Uh, you've said that corporations don't have an obligation to, you know, fund the opera to what, 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 what is the obligation of the corporation? Uh, I agree with Milton Friedman that it is to make a profit. And uh, the reason I uh, take that position is, you know, if, if I'm a shareholder in a corporation and uh, the CEO gives money to charities, his preferences over charities may be much different from my own. It's just, as Mr. Woldry said, his political views may be m much different than mine. I'd rather have the corporation return the profits to the owners in the form of dividends, and then the individuals could decide where to send their uh, make make their charitable contributions, and not have this one person sort of be an agent for everybody in determining where uh, social responsibility is going, where the money's going to land. Mm. By the same token, what about uh, Mr. Wilders's point that I think a lot of people would agree with this as well, that you have the CEO as agent for the corporation, determining what the political position will be for the, for the entire uh, corporation. Uh, uh, it's that, that's a, uh, just another, another example of what I just said, I mm -hmm. think. I mean, I don't think that the uh, corporation has any business doing anything other than making a, a good product at a, at a good price. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And then the owners of the corporation, if they prosper under the management of the CEO, can decide where to put their make their own decisions as to where to so the the corporation as a person as an entity should not be in the political arena it should be the various stakeholders uh, as individuals right and same same is true for labor unions i would say right, right. labor unions should not be in the political marketplace either uh, as a, as a union rep uh, supposedly representing the interest of all the members of the union which may be completely different from the union leader or union president's uh, mm -hmm. preferences. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with all of that. Mr. Wildridge, you've, uh, you, you have some broad themes of the book. One of those is the company has generally become more ethical, more socially responsible over time. You give some examples from the past compared to current examples, and uh, I don't know, maybe you could give us some of those examples. Uh, your... Uh, uh, I don't know. It was totally reassuring because we've had some pretty bad examples recently, but even worse in the past. Sure. I mean, um, I, I, I do think the company has become more ethical and more reasonable uh, and more socially conscious over time. Uh, and my, my proof of this really is that the earliest companies were the East India Company and various um, similar sorts of companies. And they basically existed as agents of imperial powers to, to to make money out of slavery or to make money out of subjugating other peoples or, or to make money out of all sorts of uh, illicit monopolies um, 
So to give you the biggest example of all, which is the East India Company, which subjugated the whole of India, which raised taxes. So, you know, this national function of raising taxes is basically done by a company which uses those taxes to pay dividends, which supported uh, an army which is bigger than the British army, which it used partly to fight foreign wars, but also to, to, to subjugate the people of India. So that, you know, that was the biggest company of its time, the most successful company of its time in the world. It justified itself on the grounds that it was pursuing a public purpose. That's why it was it could get limited liability. Um, and it corrupted the whole of politics, you know, that the, basically the political class was dependent upon this this organization doing what it did and paying regular dividends. And every 20 years, the company had to go back to Parliament and say, we want to renew our charter. And the Parliament would say, yeah, you can renew your charter, but give us such and such an amount of money, which went into the pockets of individuals and also into the exchequer. So this this was an extraordinary institution. There are other institutions, African, the, uh, the, the Africa Company uh, was a slave-owning company, um, ex- existed by, by human trafficking. You have um, uh, Jardines at one point, which was um, in charge of the opium trade, uh, an offshoot of the East India Company for the while, which was, was importing um, opium to, to, uh, the, to China, and which at one point got the British, British Navy to, to force the Chinese to import uh, opium. So you can talk about all the sorts of terrible things that some companies have done done recently and uh, and, and uh, some of the awful aspects of sort of corporate imperialism in Latin America and elsewhere, but it's nothing compared with um, making money out of slavery or making money out of subjugating India or making money out of forcing uh, a country to have uh, imports of opium uh, within its borders. We're going to take another break. When we come back, uh, I'll ask both of my guests uh, what I consider a key question on this point. The companies generally become more ethical and socially responsible over time. Is that natural evolution, or is it forced by regulation? That gets us into the political realm. Uh, we'll talk about that, as well as another theme uh, in the book, um, that the, the company has been a key competitive advantage for the West. It's been a key innovation, uh, some of the good that's been done. More on corporate personhood, history of the company with Adrian Wildridge, co-author of The Company, A Short History of a Revolutionary Idea. He's also management editor at The Economist. And William Shugart, J. Fish Smith, professor in public choice at the USU Huntsman School of Business. More following break. In 2011, composer Clarice Assad wove together a dozen tunes by Bach. The violas and cellos play the melodies, so it's called The Suite for Lower Strings, based on themes of Bach. 21st century music inspired by 18th century music from a concert in San Francisco on the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week, Adam Rappaport of Bon Appetit gives us guidance for the Thanksgiving feast. Stanley Tucci explains why cooking is so important. And we look at America's dirty and not-so-little secret. That's The Splendid Table, the show about life's appetites from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We head into our last segment now on corporate personhood. This is a hot topic. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you read the book, The Company, we have the co-author with us. Uh, it's been a hot topic for a long time, but has not been covered in history, as it should. 
And Adrian Wildridge, uh, one of his points is the corporation is the most important organization in the world, perhaps rivaled only by the family. It's not covered in history books as much as he thinks it should. Uh, He and his co-author have written the book, The Company, A Short History of a Revolutionary Idea. The uh, corporation as a person is much in the news, of course. Citizens United, the famous ruling, uh, recent ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, ruled that corporations have the right to spend money in candidate elections. And another ruling, uh, recently the Hobby Lobby ruling, some for-profit corporations may on religious grounds refuse to comply with the federal mandate to cover birth control for their employee health uh, benefits. We'll get into these subjects in specific in uh, subsequent uh, parts of this series on uh, corporations. Uh, today we're hitting some of the history and, uh, and an overview. Um, before we uh, pick up the threads of conversation that we left off uh, uh, before the break, I want to get into this uh, email from a listener. Uh, The listener says, what does the Constitution say about uh, corporations? Does it appear as though the writers of the Constitution had the possible evolutions of the corporation in mind? I'll start with Professor Shugart on this. I think the Constitution basically is silent on on corporations. Uh, uh, And one reason that we... uh, evolution of the of the chartering laws in the United States happened was because there is no such thing as a federal corporate charter uh, uh, in the in the United States uh, that was all left at at the state level uh, let me pick up the threads here um, with Adrian Wildridge we were talking before we went uh, went to break um, about the idea that uh, corporations uh, says mr. Wildridge have become better actors. Um, over time. And, of course, that brings up a key question I think many in our audience would would have. I'll just articulate that, is what's the reason behind that? Natural evolution? Uh, Is it regulation? The biggest reason why why companies have become better actors over time was that the original companies only had charters and only had the, the privileges of limited liability if they agreed to act as agents of the state. And what the state tended to do was to give them monopolies of trade or give them certain functions, such as promoting the interests of a country like Britain. Uh, So you inevitably got collusion between the public sector and the private sector, between companies and and, and, and power of of some sort. And, And that was a corrupting process. So I think the companies do get better when they become general purpose companies, when they're told that they can enter into any business they want to, and their business is, is business, not uh, not pursuing um, public ends. Also, there are, there are many other reasons. I mean, there is regulation, there is um, public opinion, which, for example, with the robber barons, there's a, there's a reaction against their monopoly power. There's a sense that they should, they should, they should not go around being such bullies, and there are various restrictions put on their, their rights to, 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 to monopoly or their rights to act in certain ways. And increasingly, we have, I think, had a, a more competitive environment in which consumers, consumer power has, has gone up. So I think, you know, if you look at uh, John D. Rockefeller, um, he probably, in 1900, controls about $1 in every 30 in the United States. Uh, Bill Gates, at his richest, controls about $1 in every, in every 130. So companies, concentrations of wealth are just not as big as they were uh, a century ago because the economy is bigger, more diverse, and more sophisticated. So, so the balance shifts from the, from, the, from the corporation to the consumer. Professor Hugard, I, I th- think Mr. Wildridge uh, made a point that you were wanting to make, which is uh, uh, use the example of the British East India Company. And your point is that they were set up as monopoly 
sanctioned by the government. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the corporation today, uh, generally speaking, uh, is not established uh, to carry out a public purpose. It's to carry out some kind of business. Uh, In in response to your earlier point, I I would say that uh, uh, public opinion, political pressure uh, has played a role in this. I'd like to point out, however, that the greatest uh, muckraker of them all, Ida Tarbell, who wrote uh, A History of the Standard Oil Company, was not exactly uh, a disinterested journalist. Her father, she blamed John Rockefeller for ruining her father's business as a maker of wooden barrels, which was how crude oil was transported originally. Rockefeller developed, uh, the Standard Oil developed, the railroad tanker car, which completely displaced wooden barrels as a means of transport. And not only that, her brother, William Tarbell, was an officer of the Pure Oil Company, which at the time was Standard Oil's major competitor. And he was feeding her information, dirt that she could use, uh, not necessarily accurate dirt, uh, and so she, her crusade was based on more on personal interest, uh, hatred of John Rockefeller than it was of the so-called abuses of, of the Standard Oil Trust, which uh, uh, again made kerosene as an illuminant uh, much cheaper uh, than whale oil or any other uh, substitute for it. Uh, let me just uh, have you make briefly, we have about four minutes left, so just very briefly on this, Professor. Um, you made the point during the break, Enron and WorldCom were brought down by the market, yeah. not, not regulators, as you asserted. That's right. Okay. Uh, I mean, anybody that had looked at the SEC reports of those two companies uh, could have figured out that there was something funny going on. And in fact, some uh, investors did figure it out and shorted both companies and made p- tons of money. But it wasn't until after uh, uh, the carnage had happened that the SEC and the other regulatory agencies step in and say, oh, my God, well, we've got to do something about this. And the typical reaction in that situation is an overreaction like Sarbanes-Oxley. Hmm. Let me, I was just going to ask uh, about Sarbanes-Oxley. Let's, we got your opinion, Professor. Mr. Woldridge, your, your reaction to, to Sarbox, as it's commonly known. Oh, you know, the, 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 I, I think that you know, we should have a prejudice um, in favor of transparency, in favor of forcing companies to be as open as they possibly can. I think one of the problems with Sarbanes-Oxley is it imposes a lot of burdens on smaller companies, particularly startup companies, and it's, uh, it, it, it relies on a lot of box ticking and a lot of bureaucratic um, conformity, which tends to privilege big companies and which actually doesn't really provide us with forensic analysis of whether these companies are actually doing the right or the wrong thing, but just, it, it, it just uh, emphasizes the going through fairly routine maintenance rather than anything else. But, uh, but since it's been imposed, there have been various changes which make it easier for, for, for smaller companies to escape from, from, from some of these burdens. So uh, I'm not so massively uh, against it as um, some other people are. I think there are more profound uh, worries with the nature of companies. I think, for example, boards are 
quite often extremely inadequate organizations. They meet very rarely. They're quite often appointed by CEOs. They're not very good uh, monitors of the performance of companies. And I think they're one of the great weaknesses of the, of the capitalist system at the moment. We just have a minute left, uh, so 30 seconds to each of you. One of the interesting uh, themes in, in your book, Mr. Wildridge, you note a trend. Uh, companies are getting smaller. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, company, companies are getting smaller on average. As I said, you know, um, John D. Rockefeller is much richer at his richest than Bill Gates ever was because because the economy is much bigger and much more varied. There are many more organizations. And also, to the extent that you are getting monopolies um, or, or, or massive market dominance uh, attached, as we had with Bill Gates, as we've now got with uh, Google in the world of search, they, they don't last so long. They tend to be shifted fairly quickly because it's in, it's much harder to defend your competitive position than it was to defend the competitive position in, a, in an oil company where you've actually got lots and lots of, of physical stuff. So you may, may get powerful network effects which last very, very briefly. We'll uh, just 15 seconds to you, Professor, your last words here. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, ironically, became history's, nearly his, history's first billionaire, but not till after Standard Oil was broken up. And I, I have not been able to explain that to my own satisfaction, but it's an interesting unintended consequence of antitrust law and, and regulation. Well, yeah, that's an, a topic for, an interesting topic for another time. Uh, William Shugart is uh, J. Fish Smith Professor in Public Choice at the USU Huntsman School of Business. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Adrian Wildridge is a management editor at The Economist and co-author of The Company, A Short History of a Revolutionary Idea. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining us today. Join us for a discussion on health care that's coming up tomorrow on the program. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Hi, I'm Rue Mahoney from Stokes Nature Center. I think it's fair to say that in our collective imagination, the image of a Native American warrior on horseback is as iconic of the West as buffalo herds and wagon trains. And if you know a bit about Native American history, or even if you've just recently watched the 1990 Kevin Costner blockbuster Dances with Wolves, you probably associate horse culture with plains people like the Lakota Sioux. But a special addition to a traveling exhibit from the American Natural History Museum in New York City is currently installed at the Natural History Museum of Utah and suggests that our state may in fact have been the birthplace of Western horse culture among First Peoples. While horses were native to prehistoric North America, the species went extinct on this continent at the end of the last ice age. It wasn't until the 16th century, when Spanish conquistadors like Hernan Cortes were entrenched in efforts to overthrow the Aztec Empire of Mexico, that horses were reintroduced to North America. And according to the Natural History Museum's exhibit developer, Lisa Thompson, the research shows that the Ute people, from whom the state of Utah draws its names, were the first to acquire horses through trade with Mesoamerica. Prior to the arrival of horses, the Ute were comprised of seven groups linked by a common language and shared religious holidays. They occupied modern-day Utah, as well as parts of Colorado and northern New Mexico. They lived in semi-nomadic tribal groups, erecting bark huts called wikiups and trading in fur and small to mid-sized game like mink and deer. With the arrival of Spanish traders from Mexico, Ute culture was revolutionized. Trade with the Spanish introduced firearms to the Ute culture and led to their becoming notorious slave traders, but it also introduced the Ute to horses. 
In the way that the first transcontinental locomotive would later open a new chapter in America's industrial history, the horse accelerated the Ute predilection for travel and trade. They quickly set their sights on large game, like buffalo and elk, and adopted the more transportable teepee to better accommodate their broadening home range. Better transportation and a new vocation for breeding livestock spurred Ute traders to travel further afield to other First Peoples of the West. And in this way, the horse spread to the Blackfoot, the Sioux, and other native peoples we associate with the horse culture of the Plains Indians. In fact, by the 18th century, the widespread adoption of the horse would prove a significant influence on the culture of almost every Native American group between the Mississippi and the Rockies. Unfortunately, the Ute horse culture was not long-lived. The Utes' increasing habit of capturing and trading Paiute and Navajo hostages to the Spanish for guns and horses bred intertribal violence that lasted long into the 19th century. When Mormon settlers began arriving in the mid-1800s, the Ute ran into violent conflicts with the encroaching Europeans and found themselves lacking the Native American allies their Shoshone neighbors had more carefully cultivated. By 1861, President Lincoln created the Uinta Valley Reservation, and the forced relocation of the once widely ranging Ute people began. If you're interested in learning more about how the horse changed Ute culture or exploring the history of the long and rich relationship between horses and humans, consider a visit to the Natural History Museum of Utah, where the exhibit The Horse is open seven days a week until January 4, 2015. For Wild About Utah and Stokes Nature Center, I'm Rue Mahoney. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Up next, we have TED Radio Hour.